name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. To say that the prophet Jeremiah lived in an age of cultural decline would be a significant understatement. His ministry began during the reign of the good king Josiah and spanned the reigns of Josiah's terrible successors until, as an old man, Jeremiah watched as Jerusalem burned while the people were sent into captivity in Babylon. The doom of Jerusalem was declared at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, which meant that as the prophet in Judah, he ministered among a people struggling to understand and to cope with the inevitable fall of their culture under the leadership of bad kings and bad priests who attempted to cheat the pronouncement that God had made over the kingdom. As modern Americans, we often misunderstand the cultural impact of a bad king. We think of it as something like a bad CEO, or a bad president, or a bad governor. And neither of these things are accurate. As the scriptures present them, kings are microcosms of their kingdoms. They were symbiotically linked to the weal and to the woe of their land and its people. A good king was a great blessing to all, not just to the royal house. A kind of clean spring from which life-giving water would flow. A bad king was likewise a curse, a corruption in the very constitution and foundation of the place. Kings like the wicked kings of Judah meant that faithfulness to Yahweh would be much more difficult, would be opposed, would be frequently compromised. The faithful would have a much harder time of it and suffer for it. Idolatry would be easier and thus ruin and the vanishing of prosperity in the land would become more likely. Jeremiah's prophecies center on the ruin that is coming because of the wickedness of those who were supposed to shepherd and lead the people into faithfulness and holiness, the kings and the priests. Their failure enabled the waywardness of sin, and the people suffered for it. And over time, this produced the decline of covenant faithfulness to God. Both the kingdoms of ancient Israel and oh, sorry, both of the kingdoms of ancient Israel, resulting in the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon. The land was always a promised gift, a privilege to be enjoyed to those who would remain faithful to the covenant. And just as it had been lost to the generation that had left Egypt, leaving the privilege of entering to their children, it would be denied to those who had corrupted the land through their worship of false gods. But the doom of Judah was not bereft of all hope. Jeremiah prophesies that God will establish a righteous king who will uphold the covenant in its fullness and lead the people and the land into blessedness 
the, old, the kind of blessedness that only attends faithfulness to the covenant. This return to the law and to the land would be a sign of a, the turning of an age and a call to remember that the Lord keeps his promises, even when they do not keep their promises to him. The return from exile would be so famous, in fact, that all would come to know Israel and identify Israel as the ones whose God had delivered them from an unshakable enemy, from the great empire Babylon, had brought them out of the northern kingdom and restored them to their home under a shepherd king who would lead them into righteousness. But even as these words of promise were uttered, the world around the ones who heard the words looked anything like looked nothing like the place where those kind of words could be possible the world looked nothing like the kind of place that god could redeem and renew the great challenge of faith in the time of jeremiah would be both to accept and submit to the death of one world and wait with patience, on the other hand, for the birth of the new thing that God would make out of the death of the old. Faithfulness meant accepting the fall of their way of life if they were to receive a new life. Centuries passed, and by the time of Jesus, one horizon of Jeremiah's prophecy had been fulfilled in the return of the Jews to their land after Darius of Persia let them go home from their captivity. But for the returners, the land was never quite the same. Always harassed as they were by occupying invaders. Always bereft of that coming king, the Lord our righteousness, who would secure the prosperity and the posterity of the land by embodying himself righteousness to the covenant. In our gospel lesson, we encounter Christ as he leads a group of disciples into the wilderness to teach them. When they become famished to the point of exhaustion, he provides for them. But in that provision is a deeper point, a deeper lesson. What Jesus comes to bring them is no mere satisfaction of their stomachs, a meal for the day, for those who are hungry after walking a long way. But instead, provision out of the fullness of life that Christ is and has within him. The thing that their ancestors had looked for, the thing that Jeremiah had promised. The feeding miracle in the wilderness is a sign that the shepherd king had come into the world who would lead his flock and provide for them. And yet, beyond providing for their felt needs, would undo the curse of scarcity and hunger itself, the thing that feeds the desperation of hunger, the curse of Eden, and that he, through his own provision, would meet their real needs, their deepest needs. Chapter 6 of John's Gospel amplifies into a revelation that Christ will provide his own flesh and blood for the life of the world, for the nourishing of the faithful, 
and it will overcome even death itself. Jesus hearkens back to the manna in the wilderness, a familiar cultural memory of provision when you were in need by the hand of God. So as to broaden the imagination of those who are following him that day, so that they begin to see that they are meant to partake of the true bread of heaven, the body of Christ himself, given for all. But despite the fact that this is indeed the long-awaited answer, the thing that was missing in the homecoming when everyone returned from captivity, the sign of ultimate redemption and the sign of God's permanent kingdom come into the world, like those who returned before, they are unable to receive it in that moment. The imaginations of those present are too confined in their understanding and in their ability to see what God is doing. This causes them to assume that God's power was limited to what he had already done in the past. Yes, God has provided us bread in the middle of nowhere. Please give us that bread again. But Jesus is doing something bigger than that. Like those living at the time of Jeremiah, those gathered on that wilderness plain could not imagine a greater thing than the thing right in front of them. Their sight was confined. It was narrowed. They had tunnel vision. They were held back by their narrow anticipation and the smallness of their hope for what good things a good God could do, a good that was beyond what they could imagine in the moment. We are just like them, which is why we need Advent. Advent is a disruption of our narrow imaginations with a call to look back with remembrance beyond the limits of our own personal memory, a call to look back at the things that God has done, and so that we are more able to anticipate the kind of things that God might do. Advent challenges our willingness to settle for a small vision of God, who means for us to enjoy more profoundly a more profound communion with him than what we would settle for if left to ourselves. Advent makes us look back to look forward, and in this way stirs up our will to hope by giving us a history of those who have hoped so that we might more thoroughly become a people defined by hope, a people able to wait with patient expectation for the glory that is coming. This is the pattern always of biblical faithfulness. The faithfulness of those who have gone before becomes the horizon and the the starting point of a greater faithfulness of those who come after. The faithfulness of the patriarchs at the beginning is used to stir up the hope of those who were in bondage in Egypt. The deliverance in the Passover from Egypt stirs up the hope in Jeremiah's time of those who hope for a return from captivity. The feeding of manna in the wilderness stirs up the hope that we will 
continue to be fed by the Lord in Eucharist as our Lord turns us back to Calvary every Sunday, through which we see our future at the wedding feast with him in the kingdom. To each generation that awaits the fulfillment of the word of God, the promises of God yet to be fully fulfilled, the struggle is always to remain firm in keeping watch, in not growing weary with our patience, to watch with patience, with long-suffering, and to live in light of the past to prepare for the future. Christ has come in great humility at his first coming. Christ comes to us now in the humility of Eucharist to make us glorious like he is glorious. And Christ will come in the fullness of his glory at the second coming to rule as the shepherd king over the new creation. And the God who can break the power of Egypt, the God who can break the power of Babylon, the God who can break the power of Rome and then convert it in the time of Christ, is the same God who, out of a simple boy's picnic basket, can feed thousands, is the same God who can, if we will watch for him and welcome him, feed us and nourish our life in him through Eucharist this morning. And it is the same God who will, as we watch for his coming on the last day, this is the God who will crush the head of the serpent, will eradicate sin, will shame the devil, and will trample down death by death, opening to us life in his kingdom. Christ will come again to save us if we will look with hope from what we have seen him do thus far and watch with eager anticipation for his coming in glory at the second advent, which will requite for us every need and will lead us into the fullness of life, eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.